Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrong, wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says, He yearns jealousy over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, thanks. Thanks, John, for reading those verses for us this morning. If you have a Bible nearby, I would encourage you to open up to that passage John just read. That's James 4, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to keep forging through this letter James wrote to the church this morning. And as you were listening to John read, you probably noticed that the James uses some of the harshest language in this letter in these verses. So uh, I hope you're encouraged. I hope what he said is just, you know, rah, rah, here we go. Actually, I hope those words kind of rattle us a bit this morning. Sometimes we need to be shaken out of our, our complacency and our comfort and just sort of sit up and take notice to what the Bible says to us. Now, uh, even though we're starting a new chapter this morning, as we get into chapter 4, James is still really building on the things that came before at the end of chapter 3. And so uh, this is just kind of another reminder that our chapter breaks, our verse breaks, and even our punctuation in our English Bibles was added later. It wasn't there in the Greek. And so when the churches originally had this letter brought to them and, and read to them, uh, it would have been one reading right through. It would have, they would have started at the beginning and finished at the end. And, and so maybe the, the flow would have been a bit easier for them to grasp than sometimes the distraction of, of chapter breaks and verse breaks is for us. It, it makes it feel a little more choppy. But if you were with us last week, you remember that James was talking about true wisdom and false wisdom. He was, he was making a case that there is such a thing as false wisdom, that, that there is a way to live that is categorically wrong, categorically false, and out of step with reality. Then he says that there's a way to live that he calls true, or true wisdom, and that's living in step with the way God designed things to work. 
And so as we talked about last week, the, the way that you test whether you're walking in true wisdom or false, false wisdom or sort of bouncing between the two from time to time is, is that we look at how you, you understand and relate to two theological ideas, two ideas of truths about God. And again, just as a quick reminder, here they are. First, God is ultimately for God. Yes, God loves you. Yes, he will bless you. Yes, he is for you and concerned about you. But ultimately, when we read the Bible, we see that the driving motivation behind the things God does is, as Ephesians 1 says, for the praise of his glory. So that's the first thing. God is ultimately for God. And for us, that's really good news because it's not all about us. The second thing we said is that because God is for God and because he is the creator of all things, he has designed the world to work in a specific way. That means that that there is a truth that exists about how things work and there's a truth that can be known and can be practiced and that truth is not relative. Practically, this means that you and I don't get to decide what is true. There's a a truth that can be known and applied, and there's a a way for us to walk in step with ultimate reality. And so last week we said James unpacked false wisdom this way. He says it categorically rejects that God is for God. False wisdom says that, that if you actually believe in God, if you do, then he exists just for you. If, if there is a God, he's more like the genie in Aladdin than the creator and sustainer of the universe. You just sort of call on him when you need him so he can give you something good. False wisdom also says that there's, there's no truth except for what I decide to be true for me. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter how the Christian church has interpreted scriptures, has historically viewed what the scriptures say, the church tradition, and all these things don't matter. If anything in the Bible rubs me the wrong way, I'm just going to skip over that. Surely God didn't mean to do that. I'm not going to wrestle with these things because God, if he exists, is, not, is for me. And he wouldn't want to make me uncomfortable. That's false wisdom. False wisdom lives for the here and now, for for this life. It has no view of the next, no view of eternity. It's all about getting what I can out of these 80 or 90 or so years that I have on earth. It's all about my personal happiness. Now this means there's no category in this worldview for suffering because suffering shouldn't happen if it's all about me. There's no category for when relationships get hard. There's no category for even long-suffering commitment because if this is all there is, I'm just going to extract all the pleasure I can out of this life. And if this person isn't pleasing me, well, I will replace them with someone who will. Remember how James says this wisdom is marked. It's marked with bitterness, jealousy, and selfish ambition. This happens because any time anyone has something more than you, that is an affront to you personally. You should have that thing. You should have that relationship. You should have that happiness. And James says this leads to every disorder and every vile practice. But then he contrasts that false wisdom with true wisdom. And true wisdom categorically embraces these two truths, that God is for God and God has designed the world to work in a specific way. 
True wisdom embraces those things and, and says that when God gives us instructions and commands in Scripture, they're able to lead me into abundant life because God knows how the world works and He gives me instructions on how to live that way. And so He's leading us into abundant life for His glory. I like how Matt Chandler says it here. He says, uh, when God, what God wants for me in his commands is for me to surrender to his kingship, his lordship, and to lead me into the fullest possible life for the praise of his glorious grace. See, true wisdom has eternity in view. When we, when we live with true wisdom, we recognize that there's more to life than this. There's more coming. The Apostle Paul argued that in the midst of all his suffering, and he suffered a lot, we can read about that in his letters, he said that this current suffering isn't even worthy to be compared with his future glory. Someone else said that that the first second of glory, the first second we spend with Jesus after we go and be with him when we die, will make years of suffering vanish. The first second will be worth it. Now, those of us striving to live in this true wisdom, we don't, we don't live to abandon this world. We don't try to remove ourselves from this world and just wait for the next. But we are firmly rooting our hope in that next while living this life. Our lives are, are marked by a growing, not perfect, but, but a growing purity and reason and humility. That's how James describes it in chapter 3. Now, just before we move into this week's verses, let me give us three tools to help us grow in wisdom. There's more than these three, but these are maybe three big ones, three primary tools for us. The first is the Word of God. The first is the Bible. Now, this isn't just reading and memorizing the Bible for reading and memorizing's sake, but this is spending time in the Bible, reading and studying and memorizing it so that we can know the one that the Bible talks about. If you're familiar with the Gospels, maybe you remember that that Jesus rebuked the most religious, the most scripturally uh, adept people of the day, saying, listen, you study the Bible because you think it will give you life. Your study is in vain, Jesus says, but you refuse to come to me, the one that the scriptures testify about. He's saying, the Bible's not the point. I am the point. And so we need, to, we need to read our Bibles. And we need to read our Bibles differently than we read you know, the Lord of the Rings, which I'm hoping to jump into as a birthday gift. We, it's, we read the Bible different than we read the Rocky Mountain Outlook or the newspaper. Because when we read the Bible, we need to also let the Bible read us. We let the text reveal some wrong thoughts and false wisdom that we're hoping and that we're believing in. I love how A.W. Tozer said, he says this, an honest person with an open Bible and a pad and a pencil is sure to find out what's wrong with him very quickly. John read for us 12 verses this morning and that stirred up all sorts of wrong things. If you're not sure where to start with reading your Bible, start in the book of the Bible we're studying as a church. Start in James 1, read a few verses, uh, sit in it, think about it, wrestle with it, ask God to reveal you things in it. Or grab the YouVersion Bible app. I talk about this one a lot. It's one of my favorites. It's the, the app that I use the most. Add some friends, invite one another to do a reading plan together and, and work through that together. Be in the Word. The second thing, if if you want to grow in true wisdom, is you need to be in community. 
And I recognize that, that this is hard in this COVID-19 time, but let me tell you, in Canmore, at least lately, the weather's been fantastic. There are lots of outdoor places where you can go and, and be with other people at appropriate safe distances, and maybe you have to talk a little louder to shout across the six-foot circle or whatever it is, but we have to surround ourselves with other people who love Jesus and submit to the Bible, submit to his word. We need to be together to challenge and encourage one another. Now, this doesn't mean we only spend time with people who love Jesus and submit to his word, but we emphasize that. When we get together, whether it's for a Wednesday night bike ride or whether it's for a, a walk, walking the dogs or whether, whatever it is, spend some time asking one another, hey, what is Jesus saying to you? We've got to be in community that, that encourage and spurs one another on towards love and good deeds, as the writer of Hebrews says. And third, the last tool to help grow in this is to learn from others who are further along than you in their faith and in life. It's so important to find people who are, who are ahead of you in their faith. Those who have, who have walked with Jesus a bit longer, whose faith has taken a few hits and come out the other side. People who have, have submitted things and given things up, given up worldly things for godly things. People that, that we can go to and pour out our, our questions and our doubts and be encouraged in our faith. Now, in this type of relationship, there is a responsibility that goes two ways. First, uh, if, if you're newer in your faith, uh, unfortunately, you might have to do some work to find this person. So have an eye out. Be willing to ask someone that you, that you see is a little bit further ahead. And say, listen, can we have some time to get together? Can I ask you some questions about how you read the Bible, about how your faith impacts your, your job, how, whatever these questions are. Be willing to ask someone and have some time and have some questions ready for them to honor and respect their time. On the flip side, if you have been following Jesus for a bit longer, you need to be able to make yourself available to spend some time with people who are newer in their faith. Now, not everyone, of course, protect your time there, but we do need some, some margin in our lives so that if someone comes and asks us, we can make time to encourage others to grow in their faith. And of course, I, I don't know if this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. Both parties have to have the grace and humility and be willing to say, listen, I don't know. Let's study this thing together. Let's walk through this together. Let's see what the Bible says together. Well, as we move into chapter 4, James begin once again to illustrate things for us, to, to illustrate how this, this true and false wisdom he's just talked about at the end of chapter 3 has infiltrated and permeated the church, the community of faith. And so he shows us a picture in chapter 4 of the disorder and evil that, that's a result of the envy and selfish ambition from chapter 3. And it, it, the picture is perfectly summed up for us in his harshest words in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In these chapters, James has given us uh, these two pictures of wisdom in chapter 3. And now in these verses, he's going to give us two examples of, of different kinds of friendship. And the first that he talks about in chapter 4, 1 to 5, is friendship with the world. Let me read it for us again quickly. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. 
You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says, he, that's God, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He's talking about, James is talking about the fight that we're supposed to be fighting. And that's friendship with the world. Now, it's really important for us in this day to recognize the, the, world, uh, the word friendship. It's become really casual in 2020. I did a little scroll through my Facebook feed and noticed that I have somehow more than 800 friends. We're not necessarily that close. But when James uses the word friendship here, the, the Greek or the Hellenistic understanding of friendship includes a close, intimate relationship, friendship. It involves sharing all things. It's a, a unity that was both spiritual and physical. This is a, a heart-level connection. And so James is calling out a friendship with the world that causes conflict with others, conflict within yourself, and ultimately conflict with God. He's calling out the quarrels and fights that are already happening in the church. Keep in mind, the church is only maybe 10 or 15 years old at this point, and there's already infighting going on. It's like they've, they've already, many of them have lost the focus on what they're supposed to be battling against. David Platt encourages us this way. He says, as we focus on battling with the world, a world system that encourages us to want more stuff, to prioritize our comforts, to ignore the poor while we focus on ourselves, the adversary would like nothing more than to divide us, than to divide us so that we fight battles among ourselves and have little energy for the real battle that's going on. He's saying, listen, the real battle is against an enemy that wants to lie to us, that wants to lead us away, to one, away from God, not a battle against one another. So we need to stay focused. What, what's, what's worth it? James tells us that friendship with the world comes from the, the passions that are at war within you or the desires of the flesh. He talks about this in verse 1. We, we want selfish gain. We want the pleasures of this world because we think that's what it's best for us. The problem is when you put selfish people together, it creates quarreling. Now, as I've reflected on my own life, and maybe you can identify with this as well if you're married, uh, I realized that one of the best ways for me to realize just how selfish I am and how self-centered I am, even though I maybe don't consider myself that or didn't consider myself selfish, the best way to notice how selfish I, I am was to get married. Because now all of a sudden there's two, well, I'll say one selfish person married to someone else, and you realize because you start to quarrel. Another way, which is a story for another day, is to add kids into the mix. See, whenever you add uh, two people together and there's even some semblance of selfish ambition, that comes together, and you definitely aren't, aren't going to have the perfect peace that James talked about at the end of chapter 3 all the time. Again, maybe it's just me, Maybe someone else can relate to that as well. And so this quarreling in verse 1 that, that James is talking about, it, it gets serious when we're talking about relationships, whether that's a marriage, whether that's friendships, and whether that's in the church. In verse 2, he says, you murder and you covet, which are almost certainly hyperbolic statements. He's, he's uh, exaggerating a bit here. 
But doesn't that take us back to the Sermon on the Mount again? Remember what, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Anyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. James is, is pulling on that. Well, I say don't be angry. And he's saying, listen, you people in the church, you're doing this. This is a problem. Our sinful desires, our selfish desires are dangerous. He continues and he says that, that this worldliness, this friendship with the world is motivated by a, a longing for earthly pleasure. He, he calls out the church for, uh, in two different ways. First, for, for not being a people of prayer. He says, you, you desire but don't have. And then he says, listen, when you do pray, you're not praying the right way. You're praying to get more in this world. You're not praying with an eternal perspective, which completely misses the point. He's saying, listen, even if you pray, your prayers are self-centered, not God-centered. Which again sends us back to the Sermon on the Mount. How did Jesus teach us to pray? He said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be honored as holy. See, when we pray, we're to pray for what's best as God sees it because we believe God designed the world to work in a certain way and we want to know that way and we want that way to be true. We want his will to be done. This worldliness, this friendship with the world instead says, my will be done and my name be made great. As you and I consider that, I hope we start to hear that hostility towards one another is also an evidence of hostility towards God because we're no longer saying, may your name be honored as holy, but may my name be the one that's honored. Which is why James so bluntly says these words in verse 4, you adulterous people. So far in the letter, James has always addressed his hearers as brothers or brothers and sisters, a term of love and affection that he, he cares for them, he wants what's best for them, but now he, he lays into them in this verse. Now throughout the Old Testament, God uh, describes his relationship with his people like a marriage. And when his people go their own way, their own way it's a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness or adultery. And this is serious. The more we are conformed to the pattern of this world, the more we live like the world, the more we love like this world does, the more we love this world, the more we betray God and the more we cheat on him. David Platt, again, helpfully says, in our culture and even in the church, we have sought after the pleasures of this world in sexual immorality, in impurity, and in debauchery. We have satisfied our flesh with the things of this world, with more possessions and nicer cars and bigger houses and better luxuries. We've pursued positions, plaudits, and popularity. We have lived for what's best for us in this world. And in the process, we've run around on our God. We need to repent and come back to him. Verse 5, James writes for us, Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit he has made to dwell in us? This verse again rings again of the Old Testament where God tells his people that, that he is a jealous God. He is jealous for our affections. 
And as we, as we talked about last week, this isn't an insecure jealousy where, where God says, listen, you've got to follow me because if you look somewhere else, you might find something better, someone better in here. I'll be all alone over here. Don't leave me. But this is a secure jealousy, one that seeks out what's best for you and for me by guarding our hearts. Again, because God designed the world to work in a specific way and he designed us and he knows us and he knows our hearts, he knows what's best for us. So this jealousy is, is, is telling us to run from the things of the world and cling to him in order to find all that we need. Now instead of this friendship with the world, we need to be running towards friendship with God. And James unpacks that for us in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6. Just in case you weren't encouraged so far. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This letter, as we've been studying this letter of James, this, this thing exposes a lot in our hearts. I don't know about you, but it has for me. It exposes the, the worldly in our hearts. It, it challenges a lot of things that maybe we've taken for granted. And a lot of times as we read these verses, they just, it's just one hit after another from James. It can be really easy for us to just throw up our hands and say, well, forget it. It's too much. James is asking too much. God is asking too much. I'm too far gone. I've done too much. I've walked too far away. I'll never be good enough. God will never accept me again. But he gives more grace. Those five words might be exactly why you tuned in this morning. That might be exactly why God, through his spirit, said, listen, get up, put the kids in front of the TV or something, or bring them with you, and sit down and listen to this word and pay attention to these words, but he gives more grace. It's not easy to resist the pulls of the world, and nowhere in scripture does it say that. There's so many ways every day that each one of us may lean towards worldliness, may lean towards false wisdom, may, may head towards being those adulterous people that James is calling out, but he gives more grace. Paul similarly writes for us in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. God's not telling us to do something or asking something of us and then leaving us on our own to sort it out. If he calls us to this, he will give us grace. He is faithful. He will be with us to get us there. By God's grace, he will work in you what he wants, what he's asking of you. So our job is to run to him and to trust him. Augustine also wrote as a prayer, "'Give me the grace to do as you command.'" and command me to do what you will. It's a, it's a both and kind of thing there, right? God is, is merciful and gracious and all loving, and he willingly gives us every grace we need to obey his bold commands, even the really hard ones, even the ones that seem to go against who we are, the, the, most th the things that are most maybe deepest rooted in what we believe to be true about us, God will give us the grace to obey his commands, even when they rub up against that. One writer and commentator says this, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. 
He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, we cannot forfeit our salvation, for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. Praise the Lord, he gives more grace. See, friendship with God is motivated by a longing for an eternal satisfaction. It's, it's driven by true wisdom and it has eternity to, in view, eternity in view. And as such, it results into uh, a submission to God's authority, which is what James calls us to in verse 7. He says, submit to God, and then he, he lists nine different imperatives or commands that tell us what that looks like. And so if we want to grow in godliness and friendship with God, here's how we do it in verses 7 through 10. The first thing we do is we resist the devil. The, the essence of sin, the essence of, of, of friendship with the world as opposed to friendship with God is, is trusting in the enemy. It's trusting in false wisdom while distrusting God. Now, every single one of us has lies that we believe that lead us away from God. And some of these lies are, are so ingrained in us that we allow them to define us. And so we continually give in to them. But James says here, resist the devil. Resist that lie. Resist the father of lies. And what? He will flee. Whatever it is you're believing, whatever lie you're believing, the power of Jesus at work in your life is greater than that. That means... When you're tempted to substitute lust and pornography for real physical relationship with your spouse or your future spouse, you can resist that in Jesus' name. When you're tempted to act and speak selfishly, you can resist that as hard as it may be. When you're tempted to anger, discouragement, anxiety, doubt, pride, worry, whatever, resist him and he will flee. The second thing, the next thing in verse 80 says, draw near to God. And look at what it says after that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a call to repentance. For those who follow Jesus, this is saying, listen, turn from your ways. Recognize those ways, those lies you're believing, that false wisdom you're putting your trust in, that worldliness that has crept into your life. Turn from that and come towards God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he goes on and says, pursue purity. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. This is an internal and external cleansing that he's calling us to. And again, so much of scripture tells us to do this. James wants us to, to purify our hearts, our minds, our desires, our motives, right to the core of our being. And by God's grace, we can be clean inside and out. Then in verse 9, he says to take sin seriously. Maybe as John read these verses earlier, this one stood out for you where, where James says, listen, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's not a verse typically that you would tweet out. I don't have a coffee mug that has that on to encourage me when I get up in the morning. The verse sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? But here's the point. 
when we're living as friends with the world, we don't see sin as a big deal. We just say, you know, oops, I messed up again. Well, that grace that came a couple verses ago, it'll, God's good, God's got it. But this verse, James is saying, no, 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 no. This is a big deal. I just called you an adulterous people. That's how big a deal this is. You need to be serious about dealing with your sin. And I don't know about you, but this is not something that I have done much of or recently. I, I tend towards the, well, God's grace is good. God will forgive me. There's not necessarily that, that mourning, that weeping, and that feeling wretchedness as I ask for forgiveness. It's something that that's God's working on in me. And I know that some of my conversations with others tend not to be that either. But when we recognize what our sin is, when we recognize that, that sin is turning and offending and, and going against God, the creator of the universe who designed this world to work in a certain way, when those things are revealed in our hearts, when our worldliness is revealed in our hearts, it should cause us to grieve and mourn and even weep. Cornelius Plantiga said this, said, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin. They feared it. They fled from it. They grieved over it. Some of our, our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion for losing his temper. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if this sin threatened her very salvation. But that shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation of you have sinned is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation of you have sinned still had the power to jolt people. It's interesting, the, the question has shifted. And I've been in ministry for 10 years and a youth pastor for a while, and now here, the question isn't, how do I stay holy? The question is, how close to sin can I get without sinning? How far can I go with this boyfriend, girlfriend before it's sin? How much can I have for myself before I'm offending God? So the question for us is, when was the last time you grieved over sin. And again, this verse is a hard one. It may sound self-defeating, but look at verse 10. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When, when we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. He will pull us out of that because he's already said there is grace among grace. There's a, a greater grace even. He will lift us up. He will pull us out of whatever that thing is. We don't have to do it ourselves. And so the last thing James is telling us to do here in verse 10 is to trust God completely. He will give grace when we come with humility and he will lift us up. We don't have to do that on our own. Now, finally, we've talked about two kinds of wisdom yesterday. We reviewed it this morning. We've talked about two kinds of friendship. We talked about worldliness and godliness. And James wraps up this whole section of his letter, which started way back kind of in the beginning of chapter 3, giving us two pictures of how we speak. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there's only one lawgiver, and there's only one judge who's able to save and to destroy. 
but who are you to judge your neighbor? He's contrasting for us, again, worldly speech versus godly speech. Now, now worldly speech, what he says in verse 11, they're speaking evil against one another. It's discouraging. It criticizes. It speaks against it. It attacks and it slanders. Things like gossip and slander, they kill community in a heartbeat. Those are self-centered conversations. Let me put this person down so I look a little bit better. They are not God-centered. Look also at Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 18. The writer says, The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. By speaking evil, by criticizing by slandering, by gossiping. This also dishonors God, doesn't it? That's what James is telling us here. When you accuse, when you criticize, when you slander, you are effectively putting yourself above God. You are making yourself lawgiver and judge. But God is the rightful judge. God is the lawgiver. Now this does not mean, let me be careful to say, This doesn't mean that we don't confront one another when we see sin in one another's lives. But we don't do that to to put them down and make us look good. We confront sin, we, we do so in truth and love, and we remember that the goal of those conversations, the goal of that confrontation, as as awkward and hard as it may be, is to to point these things out to help the other person and to honor God, so that we may pursue true wisdom together. We may pursue godliness together. We may pursue uh, friendship with God together. That's the point of pointing these things out. Godly speech, on the other hand, encourages one another and exalts God. This is the kind of talk that should characterize followers of Jesus. We should be known by the way that we speak of one another because godly speech demonstrates our love for God and our love for our neighbor which sounds a lot like the great commandment, doesn't it? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this text. Uh, I, I do thank you for parts of the Bible that are really hard to read, that really uh, expose some of the deepest, maybe darkest things in my heart, in our hearts. But then we come and, and read verses like six, but you give greater grace. So we thank you for that. Thank you for this text. I pray that you've been speaking to us through it this morning. Maybe this is the first time you've come. Maybe, again, this is the first time you've tuned in. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, maybe you want to grasp that grace. Maybe you've been stuck in that, that friendship with the world, uh, life kind of that we talked about, where, where you go after the things for, for you for today, for, for the, uh, the bigger house, the bigger stuff, the more pleasure, the more happiness, whatever it is, and you've seen that it's, it, it doesn't bring lasting happiness. Maybe you want to experience that grace today. Maybe you want to grasp that greater grace, and, and as verse 7 says, submit to God. Well, let me invite you to do that, to, to say, Jesus, I, I want that. I want to turn from, from uh, following the ways of this world, and I want to follow you. I want to submit to you. I want to draw near to you. I want to be cleansed. I want to uh, be miserable and mourn about my sin, and, and I want to be uh, filled with your joy. 
Well, we can do that. You can do that. Let me remind you that Jesus is the Son of God, perfect in every way. He came and walked this world to show us how to have a right relationship with God, with creation, and with one another. He was perfectly obedient to God in every way, even to the point of death on a cross. And so he died in our place as the perfect sacrifice so that we can obtain God's grace. He did this so that anyone who calls on his name would be forgiven and transformed. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark your life feels. When you call on his name, he hears your prayer and forgives you and makes you new. If today is your day to commit to Jesus and you're on our church online page, hopefully the video is working for you there, you can hit that little raise hand button that's going to come up in a second and it will let us reach out and celebrate with you. If you're watching on Facebook, I'd encourage you to just drop a comment there that says, you know, I want this today, I want to commit today. And then you can head to our website, trinitycanmore.com slash commit. And again, just fill out a couple of short questions on a form there so we can connect with you and celebrate with you. Uh, If today is your day, you can pray this prayer with me and let's all pray it together. Heavenly Father, forgive my sins. Change me and make me new. Help me to follow you. Jesus, be my Savior, Lord of my life. Fill me with your Spirit so that I can serve you, that I can follow you, that I can make you known. My life is not my own. I give it to you. Thank you for new life. And now, Jesus, you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Listen, we've been doing this online for a while, and I I know I've said this the last few weeks, I know that today was somebody's day to pray that for the very first time. So wherever you are, let's celebrate with them. You can clap in your own home, and I think through the interwebs, people can hear it. And heaven is celebrating with them as well. So we want to welcome them into Jesus' family. What a great day that is.